were taught very much that different races had ethnic personalities. Everything was racially based. And my grandfather, that was the basis of how he thought about different people. Different nationalities slash races had different personalities. It wasn't good or bad, it's just fact. They are just different types. This is United States of Race, personal stories of how our earliest memories determine a lifetime of relationships. Each episode features one guest sharing their experiences with race. Listen without prejudice to their real, uninhibited stories, because by sharing when we first learned we are all different, we find the common thread that shows us how much we are all the same. I'm your host, D.B. Crema. Today we're joined by Alex, who grew up in a tight-knit community that often turned oppression into prejudice. And that's exactly what pushed him to start thinking differently about race and society. So when did you become aware of race? Yeah, I think that's, it's kind of a funny question because everything is altered by memory. And so it makes me wonder, you know, some of my earliest memories of race are, you know, maybe in first or second grade in the schoolyard, reciting a racist song, which I'd obviously been taught, you know, and everybody universally sang about Chinese people and Coca-Cola. And I don't know why it was so ubiquitous by the white kids anyway, but it was, and I have no idea where it came from. My elementary school touted itself as the most diverse elementary school in the country at that moment. You know, it was a upper middle class neighborhood with lots of professors and business owners and restaurant owners. And it was exceptionally diverse ethnically, racially, you know, but it was hardly like some kind of Shangri-La utopian you know, integration story, right? But yeah, but yeah, the super racist song that everybody sang. Was I aware that it was racial when I was in second grade or whatever it was? I don't know. But I mean, like the entire elementary school knew this, said it, repeated it. Did the Asian kids sang the song as well? Probably not, no. But not as if any of us noticed. Did you have any sense of um, inappropriateness about singing that song? I think my initial reaction to it was, I thought it was strange. And honestly, I think that a lot of my childhood memories, now that I look back at them, when I was confronted in some way with what I would now call overt racism, my reaction to it as a child was, I was kind of perplexed or confused because it seemed a little non sequitur. You know, and like the, the, the other earliest childhood memory I want to tell you, uh, it was when I called... Uh, a girl who had recently immigrated from Africa, Blackie. And it was this moment that kind of got uh, embedded into my memory. And that's, and that's, again, it was like, it felt like it came out of nowhere. Now I know exactly where it came out of, you know? But at the time, it's like, it, I felt blindsided by it. Like, where the hell did that come out of? I, so I was very unpopular at this point. I think, I mean, I mean, the most unpopular boy, you know, and uh, there were lots, you know, there, there was a social hierarchy, even fourth grade. And I was completely at the bottom of it. And by then I had like, I had a real chip on my shoulder. You know, I was expecting to be abused and bullied and degraded one way or another. And even sort of the nice popular girls 
I felt like were mocking me. Even when they weren't trying to, that's the way I would take it anyhow. So by then I was already like fully on the offensive defensive. And um, I have no idea what the conflict was about. It had nothing to do with this girl. Like she, she, she was from an English speaking country in Africa is all I remember because she had, you know, an interesting accent. And I don't even think that she was in some way the perpetrator of this latest slight on my dignity. You know, it was probably just, you know, the nice popular girls had included her and she was somehow with them. But I vividly remember the moment she was above me on this little slope on the playground, you know. But it was definitely that moment of like, all I have is this whiteness that you don't have. And the moment afterwards, I was like, where the fuck did that come from? Because I'd never said anything like that to anyone before or since, you know, and then I got brought into the principal's office. And before he said anything, I was like fully in tears and just like bawling, you know, like, you know, the whole thing. And so, yeah. And so like that was a lesson that was at the expense of somebody else. Right. So like that's a lesson that I benefited from at an early age. Right. Like recognizing that there's this thing that was just, you know, that could just come out of me because it could because it would work somehow for me. Um, But it was at this girl's expense. Did you have any concept in that moment about what was behind all behind that? Like what 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 the power was that you were wielding? I feel like I must have because I was so immediately upset afterwards. Like it obviously felt like I had done something terrible. So without like somehow knowing that it was powerful, I wouldn't have used it. Right. Why would I have said that in particular? You know, why didn't I say shorty or whatever, a foreigner or a girl? I don't know anything else. Right. That's what came out. Um, And I think I mean, I feel like in hindsight, to me, it, it taught me a lot about conditioning. Like I'm conditioned to this. Do you have any recollection where where that conditioning came from or how you how it got formed? Right. Like I know exactly where it came from, you know, in my household. But I grew up in, in a very, very tight-knit Russian, you know, Jewish diaspora. I mean, my parents and their friends loved Ronald Reagan. And they spent, you know, every week to all hours um, bemoaning the Soviet Union and talking about how they, you know, sort of the systematic, um, truly systematic entrenched racism that they experienced as Jews in the Soviet Union. And how, you know, they were denied everything and they had Jews stamped in their passports. And then on the flip side, fully absorbing like the angry black man myth, you know, that the Republicans were putting out in the 80s, the welfare queen sort of images. Uh, There was a lot. There was so much on the television like that. You know, the implied language was, you know, there was so much of it in there. But anytime black people were discussed around the dinner table in in these larger gatherings, which happened all the time, every week. Whether we were talking about Jesse Jackson running for president, or we were talking about, quote, black on black violence, that was true for them. Do you think that your parents carried those ideas with them from Russia? Or did that yes. form coming here? No, it had it, it did not form here at all. Are they as Russians were they aligned for like well aligned for the Republican viewpoint? I think I think coming from Russia, they had very fully formed racial ideas, 
And coming from Russia, they came to the United States being completely primed for all the myths about African-Americans, all the myths about Asian-Americans, all the myths about Native Americans. Like to me now, and like as an adult or even as like a young adult, the point of view seemed like just uh, preposterously unself-aware. You know, just totally like my suffering can't compare to the suffering of others. Like my suffering is, is ultimate. So to back up a little bit, we came to this country as political refugees, right? So we had no official right to come into the country. We didn't come to the country legal, not by normal legal means, right? We came as a special case. And our special case was we were Soviet Jews. And because it was advantageous for the United States, we got this special status. Go forward with this same people who got here as political refugees, move forward um, 30 years, right? They're like, build the wall. So as an adult, and I hear them saying this, talking about illegal immigration, you know, I, my, I just, I see red instantly because... It's saying that having your children made prisoner by a cartel, that suffering is less worthy than the suffering you went through in the Soviet Union. Because why? Because you're white and they're brown? You know what I mean? It's just like that, uh, that attitude was very unacceptable to me as an adult. And, and, I mean, and, and as also as a kid growing up in that diaspora, growing up in this very liberal diverse school system. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. In the Soviet Union, you had your quote unquote race written into your passport. So you were a Kazakh, you were a Jew, you were a Georgian, you were a what Belarusian, whatever. Yeah, and that was who you were. And the Soviet Union was incredibly diverse. The one thing they did not have was black people. And, you know, everybody learned everything they knew about the world from these little children's books, these little Soviet children's books. And in the little Soviet children's books, Christopher Columbus was a hero. And this is what they learned. And this is what they believed, you know, and that's like the, the, they're the foundational myths of their childhood. And they brought them here and they fed perfectly into whatever the television was telling them. Why do you think they, your parents, but people more generally have this need to hold on to those myths that don't even have anything to do with them, nor does the changing of the myth or the modification of that myth impact them at all. I mean, I think that, and I think I, I do this, and I don't know if everybody else does this. Um, we build our identities on what we're not more than on what we are. So, so why do people hold on to these myths that have really nothing to do with them. I feel like, like my parents felt oppressed. My parents were oppressed in their context in the Soviet Union. They were objectively oppressed. They were denied jobs solely based on their ethnicity. You know, they were discriminated against overtly and I feel like you build your identity on initially on what you're not. So, well, I'm a Jew, but I'm not stupid. And if we study hard enough and, you know, work hard enough, 
will show that we're actually better. It's a reaction that could go a number of different ways. And I feel that my mother certainly, in response to being told that no matter what she did, she would always be a Jew and therefore have something fundamentally wrong with her. Um, her response to that wasn't this whole idea of characterizing people based on the accident of their birth is a bunch of crap. That was not her reaction. Instead, her reaction and many other people's reaction was, no, we're better than you are. And we're better than you are because the, um, the values that you are upholding is good or bullshit. And the thing that we're about is better. Right. So like for Jews in the Soviet Union, it might be being smarter is better than being strong, hmm. you know. And so just very I mean, super simplified, you know, but as like a child, right, forming these identities. So, OK, well, they'll always beat the crap out of us in the schoolyard, but we're going to get straight A's. Um, and they would get the shit beat out of them in the schoolyard. You know, my 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 older brother, who was there longer than me, who went to first grade there was identified as a Jew by his teacher and separated in line from everybody else. Like there was no way to hide. You couldn't pass. They would make sure to call you out. So like you had to find a way to feel like what they were saying about you was false. How did you form your opinions very different from the environment you grew up in? Yeah. Um, so how did I, yeah, how did I, form my opinions different than my parents or how did I turn out differently from them? I don't know that I have in some ways, um, which is to say certainly my attitudes are different and my worldview is super, super different, but I'm undeniably their genetic product and have, you know, some combination of their psychological and emotional makeup. Right. So I, I, I must be more similar to them. It's, it's, it's interesting because my grandfather, who is the most overtly racist person that I've met. No, maybe the second most overtly person that I've met, to be honest. But um, we're practically identical twins. We look almost exact. All our mannerisms are exactly alike. We fly off the handle in the same way. We have the same temper. We're almost the same person. Um, but yeah, we have these vastly different views. We grew up in different countries at different times. Honestly, I think it doesn't have anything to do with me. I think it has everything to do with just my environment. Um, I suspect given the same stimuli, if you put me into my grandfather, right? I'd probably turn out exactly like him. It's just a completely different context a totally different environment. I was taught different things. That doesn't mean I was conditioned any differently, but I was just taught explicitly different things. So I don't understand that difference because you were taught in your home environment and clearly you're taught by your environment as well in school through social osmosis, all those things. But I don't understand the difference between conditioned and taught and how you see that effect having impacted you. Um, it's a good question. I certainly think that in general, I chose my, my mm, exterior environment over my home environment 
dramatically in all my choices growing up. I think I'm like super American, even though I'm super judgy of Americans. I'm still super, super American. So it's not strange that I would adapt the values and the lessons of um, super liberal, affluent white America over um, the Russian Jewish diaspora. But on the other hand, even in that, I mean, in the American culture that I was immersed in outside the house and in the Russian diaspora, there were the same racist um, ideas. They're packaged differently. They came from slightly different places. But the ideas were exactly the same. I think just the difference between conditioning and being taught something is just implicit and explicit. And so the teacher, you know, the white teacher in the elementary school looking out on a sea of white Asian, brown, black children, most of them from affluent families, explicitly taught a kind of 1970s uh, colorblind kind of uh, curriculum, right? What's inside really matters, uh, you know, sort of reciting bits of the I Have a Dream speech, um, things like that. So what about the schools now? You're in the schools. Like what? Oh, wow, man, the schools now. Jeez. I mean, 11 years ago, I came into the town where I am still working. The business manager came into the little interview that I had with the superintendent. He just happened to walk into the office and he looked at me and said, oh, wow, the diversity hire. And he was joking. I think because I was a guy or because I was a Russian or because I was a Jew. I don't know what he meant. But he was very jaunty and, and thought it was a great joke to say that I was the diversity hire. This place was so white that a white guy with a Russian-sounding name was the diversity hire, I guess, according to this dude. But now, 11 years on, the foreigners are coming into town. And boy, are there some people who don't like it. Especially... The women who work in the office, especially the women who work in the cafeteria. And over the years, they've said overtly racist shit to me and complained to me about the the foreign accents that they have to deal with. Right. Because I pass pretty well as white. Look, at listen to my accent and everything, you know, because um, I am white and somehow might make them feel comfortable to tell me all this really gross racist shit that they really want to say out loud. That's the other thing that's amazing. Like. They really want to say it out loud a lot, you know, like the anger, the hatred, it's in there. It just has to find a way out, I guess. Um, The racism in this school system is not subtle. Mm -hmm. Then you have all the really powerful stuff, you know, from the concerned white mothers. Nice white parents. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, I listened to that podcast you get the real systemic stuff from them because they're just concerned for their children's education and they don't want this or they don't want that. You mentioned as you were talking about the um, the lunch ladies and other people in the uh, school and how they feel comfortable talking to you and the way you put it, it's like they feel comfortable talking to me like they see me as a white man. Um, it why stood out to they? me because why shouldn't they? And like, I, I think it's a good question. Like why you don't seem to associate yourself that way. Yeah. So why did I say I'm passing as a white man? 
I think that it's a very recent um, change that I've had in how I understand my own identity as a white man. Because I think that a few years ago, I would be quite adamant that I did not feel white. And it was probably only since I got involved with this active um, school integration program that we have and um, started going to their annual conferences, which are pretty intense and sort of amazing um, in terms of racial education in America, um, that I started to really question that refusal, the pushing away of that identity of being a white man. And it's interesting, too, because at the same time, one idea that I've held on to, you know, since I was educated at a very early age about the Holocaust and um, uh, intense anti-Semitism, you know, in modern Soviet Union, that you don't get to decide your identity, that your identity is imposed on you, right? The Jews in Germany wanted to be as German. They were dandies. They didn't wear, you know, kippot. They didn't have paces. You know, they didn't do any Jewish stuff. They were Germans, you know, and then the Nazis came around. Look, you know, I think it's very easy for people to hold contradictory ideas and contradictory identities in their mind. So, you know, through most of my young adulthood and my adulthood, I would never fully admit to being a white man, just not an American, just not, not the standard, not vanilla, whatever, just not that though. Yeah, until somehow, just a few years ago, right, I applied that same principle that I knew about other things to whiteness. You mostly are how you're treated. Your day is defined by how you're perceived by others and how people react to you on the most basic level. You know, and when I colored my hair all sorts of colors and would go into a store and everybody would be suspicious of, of me, that was a choice. You know what I mean? If I had just cut all my hair off, everything was chill after that. I had full mm-hmm. control over. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, and really it's about, it's about control. Um, that idea is central. Is there something about your identity that you have control over? More importantly, is there something about the perception of your identity that you have control over? Because I feel like it's the perception of the identity that uh, that affects your daily life, you know, but I think that <clears throat> the sort of the, that didn't like saying like, I'm not a white guy is about also not wanting to let, uh, other people define who you are. I like that you brought it right around to, um, something I was thinking about as you, you know, you talked about like changing your hair color and that you could control the reaction to you. Um, there's a privilege in that. And I, I like that you brought it around to this point about like, there are things that you can change. You can control how people treat you, react to you. And there's a lot of things that you, that one cannot change about themselves and control. I think there are, there's a lot of things that you can't control when it comes to people's reactions to you. But that said, I feel like I in particular am certainly one of a very few people in the history of humanity. Let me rephrase that. 
I don't think there have been very many people in the history of humanity who were quite as privileged as I am in terms of just sheer power, sheer control over how people perceive me. I'm not adept at it, perhaps. I might not be have the skills, but I don't even need to have the skills. Because one glaring thing that I've noticed in my life is that I can fuck up royally and have nothing but good stuff happen to me. And that's happened to me over and over and over again. And that's because I have a massive safety net in the guise of my parents. And it's also because I'm a white male in America. And I have a life free of violence, completely free of violence. That To me, that it puts me like immediately in the top 20, 20th percentile of the current human population right away. The main enormous disadvantage of any kind of privilege is that if things go well for you, if you're popular, if you don't have learning disabilities, if you things come easily to you, you never have to adapt. You never have to do any creative problem solving. You never have to struggle and overcome. So yeah, like I'm tremendously privileged. I feel like I'm sitting on a pile of history, right? I've got everything that a human being ever wanted through history, you know? You know, it also blinds you. You're blind. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, you're looking at the world through this tiny little peephole. You're never going to take on somebody else's perspective. You can't do that. You're incapable of doing it. But you can trust that they are an expert on their perspective. Mostly, I think, like my mantra over the last couple of years has been uh, a humility of perspective. Thanks for listening to United States of Race. The podcast was produced by me, D.B. Crema. Our artwork is designed by Ali Creative, and our show is hosted by Buzzsprout, which makes it easy to start a podcast, get it listed with all the directories, and get your message out to listeners everywhere. If you love great storytelling, you can follow United States of Race on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And show us some love by rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Also, you should share this podcast with your friends and anyone who believes in the power of building connection through sharing personal stories. Or you can follow us on Instagram at all one word, United States of Race. And if you have a story to share, send us a message at United States of Race at gmail.com. Until next time.